Hello, my name is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. Welcome to this episode of Preservation Oaks. In this series, we introduce you to yet another extraordinary organization serving their community by conserving and preserving our heritage. It could be an organization in your community, in your county, or in your state. Now sit back and relax and enjoy the program. Good day, everyone. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe coming to you from Salt Lake City, and this is Preservation Oaks, the internationally syndicated original talk program on MicroStream Radio, where we feature interviews with professionals from museums, cultural and heritage institutions, historical and genealogical societies across the United States. Hey, thanks for listening. By the way, our main platform is preservationoaks.podbean.com. But we can also be found on nearly all platforms across the world, as well as YouTube. Wherever you listen to the program, I appreciate it very much when you like, comment, follow, or subscribe. We trust that people want to have a better understanding of these precious organizations, know how they're funded, how each is unique to the communities they serve, what programs and events they currently have underway, and what services they offer to the public and their members. We believe this information is vital for people to know how to work with these organizations and how important it is to join, support, volunteer with, and donate to one or more of these core societies. Each guest organization on Preservation Oaks brings with them a truly unique viewpoint and perspective around how they tell the story of their communities, how they continue to be relevant for the times in which we live, and what kinds of exhibits and volunteer opportunities they've created. This makes listening to each episode of the program interesting, fun, and diverse. If you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the program, or if you have questions or comments about the program, spin off an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. All right, that being said, let's get this show snapping. Some historical March birthdays and interesting facts. Happy birthday on the 13th of March, 1733, to Dr. Joseph Priestley, a scientist who luckily for us all discovered oxygen in 1774. Happy birthday on March 27, 1863 to Sir Henry Royce. He was a car designer and a manufacturer who co-founded with C.S. Rolls, the Rolls-Royce Motor Company. Happy birthday on March 30, 1945 to Eric Clapton, who is a songwriter and guitarist. Happy birthday on March 26, 1930 to Sandra Day O'Connor, who was the first woman to become a U.S. Supreme Court Justice in 1981. Some interesting facts. On March 3, 1821, Thomas Jennings received a patent for dry scouring of clothes. 
He was the first African-American inventor to receive a U.S. patent. On March 10, 1862, the first U.S. paper money was issued. Before that, it was all coins. The denominations were $5, $10, and $20. The paper bills became legal tender by the Act of Government on March 17, 1862. On March 17, 1845, the first rubber band was patented by Stephen Perry of London. Where would we be without rubber bands? On March 19, 1994, the largest omelet in the world was made with 160,000 eggs in Yokohama, Japan. It was 1,383 feet long. On March 22nd, we see a couple of great patents for the world. Number one occurred in 1841, where Orlando Jones patented cornstarch. And the second in 1960, where a couple of scientists, Arthur L. Shallow and Charles H. Towns, were issued a patent for the laser. On March 4, 1754, physician Benjamin Waterhouse invented a smallpox vaccine. On March 5, 1574, English mathematician William Ottred invented the slide rule. On March 5, 1637, Dutch painter John van der Heyden invented the fire extinguisher. On March 7, 1765, French inventor Joseph Niepce made the first photographic image with a camera obscura. Here's a joke. A little girl asked her mother, how did the human race appear? The mother answered, God made Adam and Eve and they had children and then all mankind was made. Two days later, the girl asked her father the same question. The father answered, many years ago, there were monkeys from which the human race evolved. The confused girl returned to her mother and said, Mom, how is it possible that you told me the human race was created by God and Dad said they developed from monkeys? The mother answered, well, dear, it's very simple. I told you about my side of the family and your father told you about his. Let me get some tea. Oh, I love Twining's tea. Next on the program, we'll be meeting with the Genealogy Society of Lynn County, Iowa. That should be a great program. The Genealogical Society of Lynn County, Iowa has an extensive collection of research materials available for use as well as knowledgeable staff ready to help. They sponsor several interesting educational events throughout the year. Now you can email us anytime at preservationoaks at gmail.com. A couple of months ago, I was chatting with the president of a museum in the middle west of our country. The museum houses a number of antique tractors that visitors can see, and it's a really nice place. It was close to Thanksgiving, and as I think everyone does, I started thinking of the things I have to be thankful for, and I started thinking how thankful I am for agriculture and the people who have that as a career. I was reading that out of the 350 million people or so in the United States, less than 1%, or about 3.5 million, have a career in agriculture. I started considering that all food, let me repeat that, all food and most clothing are either plant or animal derived and that's where agriculture comes in. In a single year, we sell or give away in emergency donations more food than some countries produce. According to Wikipedia, Australia has more farmland than the United States, but only just a tad bit more. The United States is second and then China in overall farm production. The United States feeds the world. 
I read online that the U.S. exports upwards of $150 billion in agricultural products each year and imports about $90 billion. Farming is not for the timid, nor the less intelligent among us. Every year, a farmer has to face a myriad of risks. Stop and think for just a moment of all the risks a farmer has to face to produce as much food as possible. There is, of course, weather which can kill a crop deader than dead, and not just too much heat and or too little rain, but also floods and tornadoes. If it's too dry, crops won't grow. If the season is too wet, crops can rot and suffer from fungus and mold, or simply drown in standing water. As recent as 2018, over 50% of the corn crop that is normally planted in the United States was not planted due to weather. That was the lowest percentage at that point in the year since 1995. So it's not just crying wolf, it happens. Then there's the cost of the farming equipment, those wonderful machines that do so much. Do you know that it was only in 1954 when the number of tractors exceeded the number of horses and mules used for farming in the United States? Yep, those wonderful machines have gotten more reliable and more costly over time. A farmer has to take out loans to get equipment, to get seeds, fertilizer, and other essentials in order to plant, grow, and harvest the crop. And then the farmer has to sell that crop for more than it costs them to raise in order to make a dime and pay back loans. Back in the 1800s, many a crop was completely destroyed by insects, weeds, and disease, and all of the hard work of the farmer went down the drain in no time at all. We kept on losing crops in the United States, and then we created herbicides to prevent the diseases that killed many a crop in the fields. A crop that dies in the field can't be used to feed a hungry person. We created pesticides to kill the insects that attacked entire fields of crops, destroying the promise of that hard work and food for human consumption. We created fertilizers to help our crops grow faster and stronger. We were able to prevent the weeds from competing with, overtaking and choking out the crops. We created new varieties of plants that could withstand heat and drought and were impervious to the diseases that plagued other earlier varieties. All of these innovations took decades to accomplish. We didn't just flip a switch and get instant benefits, no. Over time, experimentation as well as trial and error helped us to understand the causes of some of the quality and quantity issues that pose the greatest risks of our crops not making it to harvest, and one by one, we began working to eliminate them. We still don't understand them all, and of course, things mutate over time, and we still can't successfully bring in all the crops we plant. Then, there's the uncertainty of the costs of what you need. A farmer pays retail for the supplies they need and gets paid wholesale for what they produce. A farmer has to have enough money to make it through an entire season of raising a crop or raising a herd of animals until they can make a dime. There is farming equipment, as we've mentioned, but there are also labor costs and unforeseen emergencies and day-to-day -day overhead costs and many other expenses associated with running a farming business. Fertilizer this year alone has risen three times what it was last season. The price of the commodities in the markets can fluctuate, leaving the farmer holding the bag because they are not able to sell the crops for more than it costs to plant, grow, and harvest them. Then there's the government itself getting in the way of earning a living through farming. 
Whether it's for plants or animals, new taxes, government programs, regulations, and environmental controls can all impact a farmer's ability to make a living. These can come at any time and in any year. The same is true of livestock that is used for meat, wool, and many, many other things for humans. Can the farmer get enough water? Is it quality water? What about soil quality over time? And what about the price of land? The world will soon have more than 9 billion people living on it, and each of them needs food. Farmers can struggle to provide the harvest expected and needed to be successful. Today, right now, there are fewer farms operating than ever, and yet more people to feed. This has something to do with the interest of the young people to go into farming, but I think it has more to do with the ability for farmers to make a living. Due to agricultural science, we have significantly increased the number of bushels produced by each acre of land. That is what has saved the world in terms of having enough food. The farmer gets squeezed by everyone. Consumers, government, markets, financial institutions, farm equipment manufacturers, chemical and seed companies, and Mother Nature. Pretty much everybody. After learning this information, it made me very thankful for farmers, and I started wondering why the Smithsonian didn't have a national museum dedicated to the history of agriculture in the United States. Since for most of our history in the United States, we were a population of family farms, and agriculture is the most important industry in our country. So I sent them a request to consider doing this. A couple days later, I received a response from someone who said that the Smithsonian has a number of facilities and is not considering creating anything new at this time. Needless to say, I was disappointed. And I was just dinking around on the interwebs, and suddenly, I'm really surprised by the fact that the United States has a National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame in Bonner Springs, Kansas. The center was designated by Congress in 1960. I never knew it existed. This has to be a national treasure, right? And that's when... I reached out to them for an interview. Now I'm very pleased to welcome to the program Dave Hurlbrink, the president of the board at the National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame in Bonner Springs, Kansas. Here's a short bio of our guest. Dave Hurlbrink was born and raised on a farm in Kansas City, Kansas. He graduated from Washington High School, attended Kansas City, Kansas Community College, and earned a bachelor's degree in agricultural economics from Kansas State University. David now resides in the Piper area of Kansas City, Kansas with his wife. They have two children and four grandchildren. Dave began his professional career with International Harvester, but shortly thereafter joined a small business to sell airline ground support equipment. In 2000, he formed his own company to assist the military in producing spare parts for its equipment. He sold that business and retired in 2018. Dave's been a longtime member of the Wyandotte County Park Foundation and served as its chair and treasurer several times. For several years, he served on and chaired the Unified Government Planning and Zoning Board, the Wyandotte County Parks Board, and currently serves on the UG Turf Board, which manages funds provided to the unified government from the minor league baseball team for park improvements. He is also currently the chair of the board of directors and a volunteer at the Agricultural Hall of Fame. Concurrent with other community work, 
Dave has been involved in leadership roles with Kiwanis International, including Kansas City Club President, Division Lieutenant Governor, District Governor, and International Trustee, a three-year term which will conclude in the fall of 2022. Then he plans to return to volunteering and advocating for parks and the work of his church. Welcome to the program, Dave. Thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to have you here. I'd like to tell the listeners that don't live in Kansas, if you guys ever get a chance to get to Bonner Springs, Kansas, and visit the amazing National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame, you should really do that. The reasons why will become clear during this program. Dave, I guess I'd like to start with Bonner Springs. I don't know anything about Bonner Springs. Why was the National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame located in Bonner Springs, Kansas? Well, that's kind of a long story, Sean. Way back in the late 1950s, there was a move afoot amongst a number of businessmen here in the Midwest that says, you know, we really ought to have some place to honor agriculture. Well, they started looking for spots. There was a, a local real estate gentleman here in Bonner Springs that says, hey, we ought to, we ought to give this a shot. So he started gathering options on property, and one thing led to another, and they got down to the final 10 sites, then they got down to the final three sites, and uh, they landed on our location here in Bonner Springs. And I think probably a couple of the main reasons were that, uh, number one, we sit right on the intersection of a interstate highway, I-70, okay. and a local state highway, uh, K-7. I mean, we're right there, easily accessible right off the interstate. Plus, we're in the center of the country. I think back when they did some of the early studies that between 40 and 50 percent of the population of the United States was within about a six or seven hour drive of that location. Yeah, there we are. We're uh, we're right in the middle. We're accessible. And uh, the land lays nice. It's just gentle rolling hills. What's kind of interesting is that Initially, they bought over 700 acres for the Ag Hall, but over time, we've been whittled down to just 160-some-odd acres. Some of our property has gone to make a park next door, a 18-hole golf course, a amphitheater, and a Renaissance Festival grounds. So we're in, in kind of a, I would say, an entertainment area, so to speak, plus... We are about one mile away from the Kansas Speedway that was uh, built in about 2000. We have a couple of NASCAR races every year. And then right adjacent to that is the number one tourist attraction in the state of Kansas, which is Cabela's. uh, That brings in a lot of traffic. Oh, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, and then uh, Nebraska Furniture Mart and then the other shopping and dining and entertainment options that are there in that development around the speedway. So oh. we're right there. I'm sure when they established the Ag Hall 60-some years ago, nobody had a clue that the city and all that development was going to reach this far west this quickly. But here we are. That's wonderful. Wow, you're right in the middle of it all. Oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah. how many visitors from the local area versus the rest of the world or the rest of the U.S. do you get? I would say the bulk of our folks that come in are local, probably 75% or so. But we do get a fair number from out in the state of Kansas, Missouri, the Midwest. Not too many from much much outside of the core 
half a dozen states or so around us here. And nothing that I can remember lately from foreign countries. Okay. Well, that's yeah. really interesting. Hopefully the word will get out and they'll come. I don't know if they have these kinds of institutions in Europe. I pretty much think they do, but I really don't know. Well, I do know when I was doing a little uh, Googling, as we all do to learn stuff anymore, there is a uh, Canadian Agricultural Hall of Fame. Oh. Uh, but that's the, the only other one I've kind of run across that would be similar to our Agricultural Hall of Fame here in Bonner Springs. Now, speaking of the Hall of Fame, that's certainly a unique attribute of the National Agricultural Center. What can you tell us about that? Well, I, I think that's what makes us so unique is that Hall of Fame. You know, a lot of small towns out there in, in the country here have got a couple of old buildings or an old general store or an old schoolhouse or whatever. But we're the only one in the country that actually honors people that have made a contribution to agriculture, be it through an invention or passing a law or some development that they that they might have made. Looking back through some of the listing here, we've got people like George Washington Carver, Thomas Jefferson, Cyrus McCormick. Everybody knows who Cyrus McCormick is. Yeah. Here's John Deere. Here's Jerome Increase Case. I love that middle name. Wouldn't you like to have the middle name of Increase? Yeah, that's, that's cool interesting. <laughs> uh, here's Carl de Laval. If you know anything about dairy and or milk production, that's a very important name, Mr. de Laval. There is Robert J. Dole. We've all heard of Bob Dole. Oh, yeah, he yeah. passed away recently. Here's Pat Roberts, a recently retired senator from the state of Kansas. And of course, my favorite, Willie Nelson. What did he do? Yeah. Well, uh, Willie was a big participant in some of the uh, the Farm Aid concerts back in the, oh, yeah, I remember in the 70s, 80s, yeah. and uh, really helped out the Farm Aid movement. So he was honored for that. Another of my favorites is uh, Squanto. Oh. And if you don't know who Squanto is, that's the Indian that helped the pilgrims grow their corn by teaching them to put that... Uh, that fish in there with the seed to give it a little bit of fertilizer. <laughs> that's right. That's so, right. Uh, well, here's Eli Whitney. Everybody knows about Eli Whitney. Here's a Roswell Garst, the seed company. All kinds of interesting folks here that we have that we have honored over time. Is there a committee that decides this, or there must be yeah. some criteria? Our, our board pretty well solicits nominations from our people, from various state secretaries of agriculture. In fact, one of our last inductees was nominated by the Secretary of Agriculture of New Mexico. Oh, nice. Really an interesting story. His name was Fabian Garcia. He was a citizen of Mexico that moved to New Mexico as a young man and was basically the father of agriculture in New Mexico. He introduced pecan trees. He introduced some of the chilies that now are famous for the, I think it's Hatch, New Mexico, the chili festival that they have there. Oh, yeah. But he was the guy that got all that started. You think about things like that. That's huge. What, what do we hear about people? What's the scale of heat for chilies? And everybody's always trying to outdo one another on the. Yeah, whatever that scale is. Yeah. 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 That's. Not my, my game, but <laughs> one of the things that I think you maybe maybe are, are going to lead to here later on in the Hall of Fame is how diverse some of this might be. And one of my favorites we're going to nominate, I think, to be inducted is a gentleman here that uh, grew up in the next town over by the name of Junius Groves. Okay. And I will... 
bet you a hundred dollars that none of your listeners have ever heard of Junius I, Groves. I have never heard of Junius Groves. His other name from back around the turn of the century was the Potato King. Junius Groves grew up as a slave and came to Kansas here and began to grow potatoes in the Kansas River bottoms here, not far from the Ag Hall. He got so big that the Santa Fe Railroad actually built him a siding to load rail cars full of potatoes that he was growing. He grew so many. He also grew cabbage. He built a processing plant for his cabbage to make slaw. He built a mansion. He built a golf course. He built housing for all of his workers. He was an amazing gentleman. And almost nobody here, even in, in our local county, knows who Junius Groves was. Well, I'm glad but, your guys are surfacing him and the information about him and hopefully inducting him into your Hall of Fame. I can almost assure you he'll be on the next list of inductees because oh, we've fantastic. got two or three of us that are just really going to aggressively push his name because he needs to be recognized and honored. So when there I come to the to the Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame, the Hall of Fame is like in a separate building? It's in our main building. It's outside of our 200-seat theater, and we have a photo and a brief description of each of our honorees of what they've done. It's it's really kind of cool to, to sit down there and spend a little bit of time reading what some of these folks have done. Some of them are a little bit obscure, but others are famous that, that everybody's heard of. Thank you for that. Can you provide us with an overview of your organization, your mission and objectives, and and maybe something about your membership. Our main mission is the three pillars to honor, educate, and promote agriculture. That, in three words, boils it down to that's what we're trying to do. We've been able to do that through various programs. We bring in school children on a regular basis. A class of elementary kids will come in and learn a little bit about how grandma and grandpa or great-grandma and grandpa now used to do it. They love to do things like hang up clothing after they've pretended to wash it on a washboard. Uh, we'll take ear corn and uh, give them an ear of corn and let it run it through an old hand-operated corn shell. Oh, neat. They just love things like that. You know, a little, little hands-on is great. As far as our membership, we have two separate boards that, that operate. One is a board of governors for $200 a year. You can be a board of governor. Plus, we have all of the secretaries of agriculture of every state in the union oh, nice. as an honorary member of that board of governors. And then selected from that board of governors, we have a board of directors. That's and that's cool. how we manage the operation. Yeah. Now, you were started by Congress. Yes, sir. We were chartered by an act of Congress on August 31st, 1960. So we were 60 years old in 2020. Wow. And we had hoped to have a big blowout celebration, but COVID changed our minds on that. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah. But Congress doesn't fund you, right? Absolutely not. From what I'm able to glean from various old-time lawmakers, they got the charter passed, but in the passing, all the funding was stripped out of the bill. Oh, wow. So we get zero federal funds. We get zero state funds. We get zero local funds. Wow. We rely entirely upon donations. So everybody listening, please donate and support. Absolutely. You know, it's it's one of those things, it's like running any kind of a, a charitable, you're always asking for money. And it's sometimes it's not the most comfortable ask in the world, but yeah. uh, to preserve the history of agriculture, 
Is that important? We think it is. Those that uh, fail to learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them, I believe, is a, is a quote I've heard. We'll probably never go back to farming with a, with a farm all regular on steel wheels. Maybe there's, there's lessons to be learned there about weed control and, and uh, cultivating crops rather than using strictly herbicides yeah. anymore. Who knows? That's true, huh? We're learning all the time. And there's some really brilliant people involved in that. Oh, yeah. Well, I was just reading an article here in uh, the local newspaper about a company that's uh, pioneering this. I think it's they electrocute the weeds. Oh, wow. <laughs> which, which sounds kind of strange, but it has a some type of a video camera it, and it looks down on that row and identifies the crop and identifies the weed and it zaps the weed. Holy darn. I'll tell you, <laughs> that's great if it works without, you know, harming the environment. That would be great. Well, yeah, yeah. There's no, no residual chemicals. There's, uh, you know, you're not disturbing the soil. Uh, you might maybe... Maybe a little bit of compaction there, but you're not uh, sending a, a big rig down through the field and right. and uh, compacting uh, excessively. So who knows? Maybe that's the future. Yeah, who uh, knows? Be it for me. How did yeah. you get involved in this? What's your background? How did I get involved in the Ag Hall of Fame? Yeah. Well, I have to blame my brother. He was about four years older than I, and he worked at a farm implement dealership here close by in Bonner Springs. And he and the owner of that implement dealership were both big fans of old farm machinery. He got my brother started, and my brother, oh gosh, I think he restored two or three old uh, threshing machines, restored an old stationary baler, and once you have that kind of stuff restored, what do you do with it? You have to use it. So he drafted his younger brother, who was young and dumb back then you know i was i was the one that was pitching bundles and uh shocking up bundles of wheat and hauling in wheat and feeding that stationary baler and feeding that threshing machine and helping out we did a number of different displays and and uh, shows for the ag hall and, and other groups of what it meant to to have harvest and to, to thrash the wheat, how big a deal that really was. And uh, then what you did with the straw and the and the various bits and pieces that are left over. Sure. I bet you learned a lot, not only about the machinery, but about people. You do. You, you, <laughs> you learn who knows how to run a pitchfork and who doesn't. That's for sure. You know, there's a, there's a manure fork and there's a bundle fork. <laughs> and you learn real quick which one's which. It was, it was interesting because you learn about what, what RPM are you supposed to operate a threshing machine at? I doubt that there's too many people know that little bit of arcane information anymore today. Yeah, no kidding. How do you, how do you block and uh, poke wires and wire tie bales out of a stationary baler. There's there's a lost art. There's there's stuff like that. That's how I got hooked into it. He was their volunteer of the year uh, for a year or two in a, in a row, and uh, unfortunately, he passed away here about 12 years ago or so now from cancer. So oh, I uh, I got involved with the ag hall kind of to honor his memory to uh, keep that keep that piece alive. Well, I'm so. sure everybody's very glad you're there. What's coming up next on the horizon? Where are you headed next? We are looking to have our more or less a grand reopening on April 23rd. And that will be our Barnyard Babies event. Okay. We're going to have some barnyard animals, of course. We'll have some games and some crafts 
and some uh, activities for the kiddos. Very family-friendly type event. Maybe a couple of food trucks. We'll have some corn piles for the kids to play in. We'll have some pedal tractors and some little hoppers that the kids can play on. And the entire facility will be open and the whole family can tour the train depot or the blacksmith shop or the one-room schoolhouse. And I do have to say that we have kind of a unique situation with our one-room schoolhouse. It was moved in from about four miles away from where we are. And we actually have a couple of our volunteers that attended that school as oh, students. Nice. So it's uh, it's really kind of a, a, a neat deal that people that actually attended that house, schoolhouse are there. Just really, really a unique. And then I even know other folks who whose uh, parents taught there. It's fairly close to our heart and not too far from where it used to live way back prior to 1961. So, wow. How yeah, old is it? I think it was built in about 1917 oh, wow. after the one prior to it burned down and like like so many times the the old stick built buildings and wood buildings were known to either be blown down by a tornado or burned down by whatever cause lightning or you know the stove overheating or whatever that might have been can you tell us any funny or interesting stories from your history oh best story is about lucy lucy is world famous lucy is a camel We've had for a couple of years running now a, an event we call Santa's Express. And with COVID, we weren't able to have the, the kids come in and sit on Santa's lap and tell him what they wanted. So we turned it into a, a drive-through light event. And uh, Santa would wave at the kids or talk to them from outside the car and all. But one of our, our features was we had a live animal nativity. We had a couple of goats, we had a couple of donkeys, we had sheep, and we had a camel, which whose a, name a was Lucy. A live camel. <laughs> a live camel. Oh, my. You know, hey, surely they had one of those back in, in Bethlehem back in the day. Probably. Well, Lucy was a little bit, shall we say, unwilling to participate. <laughs> <laughs> so after the Saturday night show, the fellow that had brought the camel in, was trying to load Lucy up into the trailer and take her home for the evening. Well, Lucy decided that she did not want to go into the trailer, and she broke her halter oh. and ran. And that was like 9.30 at night. You know, you don't want to go running around unfamiliar territory in the dark chasing a camel. Yeah. So the next morning, there was reports that, uh, hey, there's a camel on the golf course. <laughs> and we had the local police chasing said camel on golf carts. <laughs> they did not catch Lucy. Oh, no. uh, Lucy was then spotted southbound on K7, oh. going past the Waffle House. People were sitting there having breakfast and looked out and said, hey, <laughs> there goes a camel down the highway. Oh, gosh, I hope she didn't get hit by a car. Oh, no, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, then, she, then she was going through the intersection by the McDonald's, and a couple of people got video of a camel trotting down the highway through the traffic, through the traffic light. Oh. And that video went viral. Oh, wow. First, it was the uh, the local TV stations picked it up. Then we went to some of the national media. And we even got picked up by BBC America. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I say Lucy was world famous. And even here, I think just a couple of weeks ago, the uh, animal control officers here in Bonner Springs that actually lassoed and caught Lucy 
were interviewed on the Kelly Clarkson show. Oh, wow. So that's good. Our, our Lucy the Camel is now world famous, we're pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. That's a good story. Now, are you going to feature Lucy in any future uh, manger scenes? <sighs> Doubtful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Doubtful. In fact, the, the next night that we, we, uh, we went on with our live nativity, Lucy did not participate. Oh. Lucy was at home in timeout. So. <laughs> oh, poor Lucy. What kinds of exhibits and memorials are on display? Well, we've got a number of different things. When you say the word memorial, it brings to mind our National Farmers Memorial. We've had a couple of artists come to us back in the 80s and say, you know what? There's nothing that really honors the American farmer. So they did some great work of raising funds and doing some sculpting and some planning and created the National Farmers Memorial that I believe we dedicated in about 1984 and still stands out in front of our facility there. It looks like a, just a, a white mound, and it's, I think it's supposed to be somewhat reminiscent of the hills and maybe even of some of the early Native American mounds oh, okay. that they would uh, perhaps bury their dead in or store food or whatever in. And there's, there's three bronze panels in there showing the farmers of the past, the present, and the future. Nice. Now, do you rotate the exhibits in the museum there to keep somewhat, things fresh? Somewhat. We've uh, currently got the, uh, the photograph exhibit of the Dust Bowl days and the Depression days. Oh, That's yeah. in there. That hit Kansas? Have, that hit Kansas pretty good, mostly oh, okay. a little bit west of where we are here in, in Kansas City area. I can remember my parents talking about how the dust would come and some of the days when it just, just got black oh, in, the, wow. in the afternoon because of, there was so much dust and the street lights would come on. And uh, I remember my mom talking about putting newspaper and rags around the windows to keep the dust out of the house because it would just blow in and seep right through the, wow. the any kind of little crack to get into the house. Yeah, we, we, were, we were somewhat spared here. There's that. There's, uh, well, we've got our old 1906 dark truck which is one of very, very few in existence. We've got some interesting artwork. We've got a Thomas Hart Benton mural that was at a uh, World's Fair exhibition way back wow. when. We even have bits and pieces of a wind wagon. If you remember way back when we were going across the prairie, that the wind blew so often that they thought, well, instead of using horses, let's try to put sails on oh. these wagons. And we've got bits and pieces of a wind wagon that we uh, we display. Plus, we've got our uh, our 20,000 square foot museum of farming with more agricultural equipment than the Smithsonian has. One of the things I love about that is is not the big tractors and the big equipment at all. It's the, the small stuff, the everyday stuff that you used on the farm every day or, or once a week or something. And if you ever would go to a farm and go in the barn or one of the sheds, farmers were great at putting a nail in and hanging stuff up on the wall. I know anybody that's been on a farm can identify with that and knows exactly yep. what I'm talking about yep. when everything got hung up on the wall. And some of those tools are displayed just that away. In the, uh, in the Museum of Farming, you know, there's old cradles for cutting wheat, there's size, there's hand tools, there's ice tongs, uh, you name it. it, it's up there, just the way it would have been hanging in the barn on the farm. That's and so I, neat. I, I, I just really get a, get a charge out of, out of looking at that and knowing that that's just the way my parents and grandparents would have done it. So 
as a kid, as I was growing up on a small farm, the thing I always remembered was the smell when I walked into the shed where the tractor was kept. And oh, yeah. it was all gas and oil kind of a smell, plus soil sometimes. And mm-hmm. uh, I never forgot that. Oh, yeah. That's that's one of the things that, that I think our, our current generation has missed out on, the smell of, of turning over soil, yeah. of, of plowing or disking, and that earth smell. I, I guess it's microorganisms or whatever it is we're smelling, but that is an unmistakable smell. And today with no-till or minimum till, we don't smell that anymore. Yeah, That's, that's a smell that we've, uh, we've lost sight of. Unless you're digging up a garden in the backyard, you'll still get a, you'll get a whiff of it. Well, Dave, it's time for our first break for a few minutes. All right, listeners, we'll pick up where we left off right after these important messages. Thank you for listening to Preservation Oaks. If you're a member of a museum, historical or genealogical society that has not yet been featured as a guest on our program, please let them know to contact preservationoaks at gmail.com. We welcome everyone. Thank you. Introducing a totally unique experience, the National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame in Bonner Springs, Kansas where state-of-the-art immersive environments and interactive exhibits take you on an amazing journey of the history of agriculture in America. Discover a world where the story of agriculture technology and those honored for their contributions to agriculture are as fascinating as the story of America's founding and where children learn about the rich contributions of farmers as well as the science and technological innovation behind agriculture. The National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame in Bonner Springs, Kansas. Their legacy is yours. Call 913-721-1075 or email info at aghalloffame.com for more details about admissions and hours. Let's see. Here is one of the most frequently asked questions to Preservation Oaks. Does a new episode of Preservation Oaks get released every two weeks? Yes. Um, more details? Oh sure. We record our programs about 20 days prior to release. Then we go into post-production to add music, fix issues, and create the final production. Whoa. Less details please. We release a new episode every two weeks using technology. Ah. You can listen and subscribe on most any podcast platform. So, make today the day you visit preservationoaks.podbean.com. Got it. This is Debbie Burgess, president of the Onega Historical Society, and I listen to Sean Thomas Radcliffe and Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and we're here today with Dave Hurlbrink from the National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame located in Bonner Springs, Kansas. Welcome back, Dave. Well, thank you, Sean. Good to be here. We were talking about the exhibits in the uh, National Agricultural Center, 
And what I was asking was, do the exhibits rotate to keep things fresh? And what kinds of exhibits are there? And, and I also want to ask, do you have any collections exhibited anywhere else? When you have large pieces of farm equipment like we do, you don't move them around too much. You're talking eight, 10,000 pound pieces of equipment that you right. just don't move on a whim. But I, I know our artwork, it does rotate quite a bit. We've got a sizable collection of paintings and, and artwork that rotate from time to time through our, our gallery. We add to our Hall of Fame from, from time to time, about every two years or so, as we uh, induct some new inductees. We do add occasionally. We uh, most recently added an ice house. Ooh, nice. We uh, had a, a family here whose property was oh, four or five miles from our location, and their property was taken for an Amazon-type warehouse facility <laughs> and uh, had a beautiful old, probably Victorian 1880s house that was torn down, of course. Oh. But they wanted to preserve their ice house, so they donated enough funds to move this ice house rock by rock and uh, relocate it to the Ag Hall. And we've got it right beside our Smith house where an ice house would be. Keep it, uh, keep the ice close there so that uh, in the summertime when you wanted to make a little homemade ice cream, well, you go out and get that block of ice that you harvested off the river or off the pond and uh, you use that uh, to make your ice cream. Uh, we uh, we intend to use that as a as a uh, teaching moment for a lot of our students that would come through our young oh, yeah. kids. We'll have them in the kitchen of the uh, Smith House and say, "Hey, can you go over there and grab some ice out of the refrigerator?" Where they're going to look around and notice there is no refrigerator in the <laughs> kitchen, and uh, then we'll then we'll lead into a discussion of how we really used to to have ice delivered and uh, how we used to harvest our own ice. Yeah. Wow, that's so and, interesting. I bet they learn a lot. I think so. I think so. And as far as having exhibits uh, on display elsewhere, occasionally we will take some small exhibits out to like a, a shopping mall or something like that and put them on display nice. there. But generally, we keep it all pretty close to home. I was reading somewhere that it takes about three hours to see the museum and the grounds. Is that oh. right? Yeah, every bit of that. One of the things that I've noticed is when I've given people tours, you know, they, they like going through the, the Hall of Fame and the galleries, but you take them down to like the one-room schoolhouse or the train depot or especially the Museum of Farming, and you start walking through there, and all of a sudden they will see something that triggers a memory. All right. And some of those memories are so strong that they just stand there and tell you about a grandparent or a father or an uncle or somebody that had, he had that same piece of equipment and he used it this way, or <laughs> I sat on that tractor for hours on end or whatever it might've been. But the memories you can just tell the way they're talking to you, that that's a really strong memory that some of those pieces of equipment generate. And it's just like, Oh, that's cool. That this is, this makes it all worthwhile to volunteer there and and lead people down through there and say, yeah, here's here's this piece or here's this threshing machine or here's this corn picker or whatever it might be. And you, you never know what that piece is going to be when they all of a sudden light on it and you can just see the face lights up, the voice raises a few few notes, and they really 
they, they tell you their own story. And some of them are fascinating. I mean, just incredible stories of of what people, you know, how they really used the farm and how it was really done. Now, I, I was reading also that you have a new exhibit, which is Hard Times Life in America During the 1930s. That's fairly new. That just was installed here about two or three months ago, really. Okay. And uh, for, for exhibit, that'll probably be on display through the summer. It's it's a lot of the old black and white photographs that I think the federal government commissioned some of these photographers to go out and take pictures of Depression-era life. Some of the old uh, trucks loaded up and, and heading for California from Oklahoma. Some of the uh, children and wives of the farmers sitting outside those sod huts or whatever it might have been. The old pieces of equipment that are buried in the dust and some of those kind of photographs. It's really pretty touching exhibit to see that today and know that we're doing a lot better job in general of farming and taking care of the land than we did way back in the Thank goodness. The, the 30s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because we haven't still... had a Dust Bowl event since then, right? No, we haven't. But Thank there's goodness. still places... I was out in Kansas here probably 10 years ago now, out around uh, Scott City. It's almost to Colorado. And uh, was riding around with a local farmer looking at some of his fields. And they irrigate and, and use conservation tillage practices and that kind of thing. But there are still a few people out there. A guy drove by, was still disking that ground and raising a cloud of dust that was huge. And right across the road... You could see there was what was left of an old foundation, maybe three or four feet high, and the dust had just drifted over there. We haven't learned that lesson yet in some instances. By and large, everybody has, but there's still a few folks that haven't quite figured it out yet. Now, on your site, you also have something called the Smith Event Barn? Yes, we have a really nice, what I'll call a modern barn. We got a concrete floor, got bathrooms, got a little uh, prep kitchen that we rent out for various events. We do a lot of weddings, a lot of family reunions, bridal showers, uh, quinceaneras, that kind of thing. That proves to be very popular. It's a it's a nice venue. We've got close by parking. It's a it's a really nice venue with an outdoor deck. It's a good source of revenue for us is what it is. And it, it's available, except in the month of June, May and June, seems like we get about every weekend we're booked with a wedding. Oh yeah, so. of course, yeah. And then you've got Farm Town, and Farmtown includes that old one-room schoolhouse that I talked about. Okay. A uh, a reproduction of a general store from way back. A, uh, a hatchery, which is full of various old egg production and chick production equipment. Nice. The the blacksmith shop, which is functional, has got a, a really some interesting collection of of tools and anvils and horseshoes. And it's not all horse related. There's a couple of parts of that shop that date back to early automobiles. How our parents and grandparents may have repaired and taken care of their Model T's and Model A's. I know there's a couple of axles that are up on the wall with the writing on a Model A or Dodge truck and uh, things like that. So it's it's kind of fascinating from that uh, point of view Very for cool. an old gearhead like me to, to see some of that kind of stuff hanging up on the wall. 
You've got so much there. You've got a railroad depot and a caboose. And a caboose. Wow. Yeah, the railroad depot was moved in from maybe six or eight miles away. We had a, a big help from Union Pacific Railroad that helped us move that. And then they also put in a little narrow gauge railroad that the kids love. We have to have the train running because the kids just love the train. And it goes out around our pond and across the dam and through a tunnel and back to the depot. The kids and and the parents alike really enjoy that quite a bit. Well, listeners, they've just got a ton of stuff here in the main building, on the grounds, farm town. There's just a huge amount of different exhibits and different things to see and learn. So we talked a little bit about funding. I'd like to understand your 2022 goals. 2022 season, if I'm correct, is just sort of opening up in April with your first event. What are your goals? Right now, we're a tiny bit short on volunteers. We need a few more volunteers to help us guide folks through the whole area. What we hope to do is be open three or four days a week rather than just on weekends like we were prior and have docents or interpreters or whatever you want to call those folks stationed throughout the grounds that when you walk into the one-room schoolhouse, well, there's an old school marm in there that's going to tell you how it was. Or if you go into the blacksmith shop, there'll be someone in there maybe even uh, pounding on a piece of iron and uh, making a trivet or or an S-hook or something and, and show you how that's done. Maybe even in the Smith house, we'll have a couple of folks portraying Mr. and Mrs. Smith and can tell you about what their life was in the 1890s and turn of the century. That's what our goal is to try to have that, plus to be able to raise some funds to uh, add to our corpus and to continue to support the operation of the Ag Hall. I don't know how you put this delicately, Sean, but back 20 years ago or so, the reports of the demise of the Ag Hall were prevalent. Oh, really? Everybody said, oh, "Oh, they're going to go out of business. And we still fight that impression because it was reported in the media that, oh, they're going out of business. Well, no. no. We're not going out of business. We're still in business. We're still here. That's one of the things that we'd really like to do is be able to raise that awareness that even here amongst the locals, so many people came through for our Christmas light event and said, wow, we never knew this was here. So uh, I think we probably are more well-known outside of the local area than right here within 15 miles of where we sit. That's really too bad. We got to get the word out about you guys. What we've found to be our most effective method is Facebook. A lot of our our young families, that's how they get their news on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. So we post to Facebook at least once or twice a week about what we're doing, what's going on, what's going to happen. And then we also have a newsletter that comes out three or four times a year that uh, keeps people apprised of what it is we're doing. What other type of fundraising or activities or opportunities does your center offer? Well, for those of your listeners that are out away from us, we have the opportunity to participate with us through like the Walk of Fame. We have bricks that you can purchase. Put your name on them and your name will be right there, right outside the Farmer's Memorial and be there until the bricks wear down. There's a couple of different levels there. I think there's a $125 level for one, or that's the four by eight brick. And then the $225 level is the eight by eight. So uh, you can put a lot more text on that eight by eight, I guess, is is the difference there. Well, if you want to memorialize someone who has passed or your family or 
the fact that you were a farmer in Kansas or anywhere, actually. Well, in anywhere, it's, it's uh, as I say, we are the national center. We are not limited to Kansas or Missouri or the Midwest. It's national. And I, I guess that's the that's the thing that even even my board and, and some of my volunteers have a hard time wrapping their head around, that we are a national center. Yeah. We're not just a local venue here. We are the National Agricultural Hall of Fame. We're the only one in the country. Now, Dave, we talked about COVID-19 and you alluded to, hey, we had to close and, you know, we're only doing a couple of days a week and so on uh, due to volunteers. And perhaps part of that is due to COVID-19. How else did the COVID-19 pandemic affect your center? Well, we obviously couldn't just allow the general public in, but we did try to avail ourselves of folks that, since we're right there on the interstate, a lot of times we would have a carload of, of a family just show up or would call maybe an hour or so ahead of time. Hey, we're, we're right here in the area. Can we come by? <laughs> and we said, sure, come on, we'll we'll give you a $3 tour for a nickel or whatever and let them come through. But as I think I told you earlier on in some of our preliminary conversations, the Ag Hall of Fame was, was a lifesaver for some of us volunteers to be able to get out of the house, go someplace out on 160 acres, do some uh, cleaning up of flower beds or cutting brush or cutting weeds or mowing grass or whatever it might have been. But that was that was a salvation for some of us to yeah. be able to do that and not have to be cooped up indefinitely with a lot of the, the closures and, and all that we had in COVID. But our, our people stayed right with us. Our volunteers stayed right with us. Oh, a, a couple of them, you know, the older older gentlemen that may have had some uh, compromised immune systems and that stuff stayed away. And as well, they did. But uh, those of us that you know, felt like we were okay of uh, getting out there and, and working. We, we were there through the whole thing, and our people, our uh, our lone employee showed up every day. <laughs> so so we, were, we were doing well, I think, even in spite of that. Now, I, I know that you close the center, I think it's from October through April? Pretty much, yeah. It, it just gets too cold to be, to be wandering around out in the outside because a lot of our, our exhibits is outdoors and, and there's a fair amount of, of walking from one one building to the next or from the from the main building to the Museum of Farming and then then from there to the Smith house or the event barn or on down to the farm town where the schoolhouse and the train depot which is one thing we haven't mentioned yet we have another barn there. It's called the Lineman's Rodeo Barn, okay. and we have an event in the fall every year called Lineman's Rodeo. Just on the north side of our property, we have what looks like gigantic asparagus. It's probably 100 or so telephone poles, about 25, 30 feet apart, and we have an event every fall called the Lineman's Rodeo where we have these teams of electrical linemen that come in and compete with each other on various uh, tasks that the linemen would have to do in in their daily uh, lives as linemen of going up that pole with their spikes on and changing out a fuse or whatever it might be or rewiring a connection something like that or there's even one of the one of the tasks they have they have a 150 pound dummy that they put up there <laughs> the uh, lineman has to go up and rescue that dummy like it's one of their own that may have gotten too close yeah. or 
something backfed with electricity that got shocked and they have to bring him down safely. So there's, it's really a large event. I think we were there two years ago. We haven't had it because of COVID obviously, right, right. but uh, I think my wife and I were there two years ago and there was between 10 and 12,000 people there oh, for that fantastic. event. And it brings teams in from literally all over the world. We had some, we had a team from Australia and a couple from Europe and it was it's really a huge event that draws people from literally around the world. So listeners, you should know based upon Dave's description, there are still people called linemen who have to climb up on telephone poles of all varying heights and fix and maintain the wires and the fuses that carry electricity across our country. Mm-hmm. Uh, at our uh... Barnyard Babies event, we're going to have a a company that has done a a wind project here in Kansas. It's going to come and have a display. And in years past, they have sent over some of these young men that climb those wind turbine towers. And uh, if it's any anything like the ones that I'm familiar with, that turbine part where they generate the electricity is about 225 feet off the ground. And... You look in one of those towers, and that ladder is straight up. That is crazy. <laughs> you got to be in really good shape to climb 225 feet straight up, and then you know get up there and maintain that generator. However, change the oil or whatever they have to do in there. I don't know, but they're going to come and and hopefully some of those gentlemen will be there and can tell us about their jobs of working on these turbines and taking care of that. I think it's like a 2.2 megawatt turbine. That event is going to happen on April 23 of 2022. We seem to be moving in the right direction with the uh, Omicron variant. We, we see the mask requirements dropping and the case loads and the hospital loads dropping. Now, I was reading all about your team, and even though you're closed from October through April, you're really busy all the time, even during that time. Oh, heavens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, one of our One of our biggest projects that we've done here uh, while we've been closed this winter is we've replaced a railroad bridge on our little uh, narrow-gauge railroad. Uh, We'd had original wooden bridge that had been there for 35, 40 years, and came time to replace that. We had been working this winter to replace the bridge, and that's been an ongoing project for some of our volunteers, plus the regular just maintenance of taking care of 10 or 12 buildings that are out in the weather all the time. Those same volunteers helped us put up a lot of Christmas lights and Christmas decorations for our Christmas drive-through event. We're always uh, having to clean up and take care of our event barn. We even had a a gentleman come volunteer and help us put the door on the ice house. The uh, family donated everything but the door. I guess there was no (laughs) door on it when they when they moved it. So we had to recreate a an authentic door, and we did. We found some old That's barn cool. wood, and we made a really nice door. Anytime you have 160 acres and 10 or 12 buildings, there's always something to do. Oh, yeah. And it's not always field work or handy work. There's, there's computer work. There's filing. There's uh, telephone work. There's research. There's just lots of stuff that, uh, that can be done if anybody's interested in, in becoming a volunteer. We, uh, we'll take about anybody that's breathing can be a volunteer. Do you guys publish a newsletter? We do. Uh, It comes out, oh, three to four times a year. It's not real regular, but we do publish a newsletter. And as I say, most of our communications comes out now 
via social media, believe it or not. For those of us that are in my age group, that's kind of a shock, but that's how most of it gets disseminated. Hey, I hate to interrupt, but it's time to take our second break. Okay. Listeners, we'll be right back to this interesting conversation after these important messages. We'll be right back to Preservation Oaks with Sean Thomas Radcliffe after these important messages. National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame in Bonner Springs, Kansas. For over 60 years, the National Agricultural Center's mission has been to celebrate the American farmer and ranch, the value of the food, fiber and fuel, and the special beauty of America. The purpose of the National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame is to educate society on the historical and present value of American agriculture and to honor leadership in agribusiness and academia by providing education, information, experience, and recognition. Learn more about your National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame in Bonner Springs, Kansas at www.aghalloffame.com and provide your support for accomplishing the mission. You'll be glad you did. At Preservation Oaks, we love history. We are very grateful for our historical and genealogical society guests sharing history and information about their society, their current needs, and about what makes them unique. If you're a historical or genealogical society listening to Preservation Oaks, and you'd like to be a guest on the program, please email preservationoaks at gmail.com. Again, that's preservationoaks at gmail.com. Listeners, thank you for listening. You can comment anytime about the show or send suggestions by emailing preservationoaks at gmail.com. Thank you. We're spending a lot more time at home. Mike binged watched every episode he could fit into his mind. Betsy has painted her kitchen and dining room seven times. Natalie is saving the plastic bread wrapper holders. She has a plan to melt them down to make a new back scratcher. Melissa ate the entire contents of her freezer. Terry uses his virtual reality headset to escape into the microscopic world of dust mites. Yep, lockdowns are no fun, and the longer this goes on, the crazier it's going to get. Stay sane or come back to reality by listening to Preservation Oaks to make the most of life at home during the lockdown. We give you a steady dose of interesting information and reality. How did the county you live in get its name? How can you volunteer and spend your free time helping your local museum? historical or genealogical society? How was the 1918 flu pandemic similar to today's COVID-19 pandemic 100 years later? How do archivists spend their time? With a bit of imagination, history can be a time machine. The more you learn, the wiser you'll get. To make the most of your time at home, visit preservationoaks.podbin.com. Hello, this is Sean Thomas. If you have a society in your area, then please support them with your volunteer time and funding. The more support they have, the more they can benefit the community in terms of providing records for family research and education for the public and students in grades K through 12. With adequate funding, the society can stand up a museum or sponsor historical and fun events in order to tell the historical story of the area and its inhabitants. Maintaining a society makes a huge difference in a community. Please don't wait. Show your support for your local historical or genealogical society today. 
They preserve our heritage and culture for existing and future children of all ages. Thank you. Explore the history of Beltrami County, Minnesota by experiencing the exhibits at the Beltrami County Historical Society located in your own hometown and nestled in the heart of Bemidji. Bring your family, bring a friend, or just come on down to learn more about why they love the 1912 Depot and Beltrami County. Visit them at their website at beltramihistory.org or come to the depot at 130 Minnesota Avenue Southwest, Bemidji, Minnesota 56601. You can also phone at 218-444-3376 or email them at depot at beltramihistory.org. You'll be glad you did. This is Melody Lager, president of the Heartland Museum, and I listen to Sean Thomas Radcliffe and Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. We're here today with Dave Hurlbrink from the National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame, located in Bonner Springs, Kansas. Dave, we really learned so much. Thank you so much for your time um, and the great information you've shared so far. Uh, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you. I want to go now to how you interface with other historical or museums or state, county, and regional societies. I know you don't get funding from any of them, but do you interface or share information with them? Well, interesting that you ask that question because here in about an hour, I'll be going to a, a meeting of the various museums that are right here within uh, rock-throwing distance of the, of the Ag Hall oh, here nice. in Wyandotte County. We sit down and we share information about our, our various exhibits and what's coming and what we can do jointly. We've had inquiries from, from other entities here in the city asking about various artifacts that we might have and wanting to borrow artifacts, and we're we're happy to do that whenever it's, it's appropriate. Yeah, so, that's really yeah. nice. I'm glad you have that kind of alliances. They're like a state museum organization or anything like that? You know, there's the state organization of county historical museums. Oh, okay. Uh, we don't necessarily belong to that since we're not the county museum. Right. That, that sometimes, I think, is part of our problem with the Ag Hall, that we don't fit in any nice, neat category as yeah. a county museum or a regional museum or whatever. We're, we're a national piece of the pie, but we function not only on that national level, but partly on a regional level and partly on a local level. Yeah, I'd say you so encompass we, we, it all. Yeah, yeah, we kind of touch all the bases there. Yes, sir. I want to remind the listeners of your website. It's www.agahalloffame.com. The National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame is also on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Their address is 630 North 126th Street in Bonner Springs, Kansas, 66012. And their phone is 913-721-1075. If you'd mm -hmm. like to email the center, you can email them at info at aghalloffame.com. And if you... Call that phone number, that's 721-1075 and area code 913. Odds are that you will get Judy, our one loan employee, who knows 
everything about the ag hall oh, even cool. way more than i do so <laughs> very cool so so talk to judy what kind of things are available to do on the website uh there's uh, there's some videos there's some photographs of uh, some of our past barnyard babies and santa express events there's even a place where you can donate on the website yay, yay. that's good <laughs> yeah yeah can there i become go. a member via the website I believe you can. It's continually being updated and changed and, and modernized. What's the easiest method for members of the public to donate to the National Agricultural Center? It all depends on what your definition of easy is. If you're a technological neophyte like me, calling is the easiest way. Okay, that sounds good. You can donate on the website. I think there's even a place on the Facebook page oh, uh, yeah, to good. donate, I believe. Wonderful. So, yeah. But for those like me that are of my, my generation, we'd much rather call up and talk to somebody and, and hear a human voice and put that voice with the facility and know that, okay, I talked to somebody there and they, and they walked me through it. And, and I feel confident that what I'm going to do here in this donation is really going to get used. It's not just going to go off to some black hole somewhere yeah. and uh, just sit there. So speaking of soliciting funds, can you tell the audience about any current initiatives or needs of your center that you want people in your area to know about and support? The one I'd love to tell you about, Sean, is our schoolhouse. Our one-room schoolhouse okay. has been sitting out there in the weather now for well over 100 years, and it could use some tender love and care. It needs some of the siding replaced. It needs some scraping and painting. It needs some soffit boards replaced. It could use some new windows and doors. What I'd really like to do is start a fundraising drive called Save Our Schoolhouse and uh, and get people to, to donate uh, some funds to help preserve that schoolhouse because that's really uh, out here where we live, where where I'm sitting right now is, is just maybe a mile or less from where that schoolhouse used to sit. And this area 40 years ago was was country, but today it's suburbs. Right. And people that are in this school district, I think, would be amenable to donating to a cause like that because that's that's their grandparents' old schoolhouse. And that's the way we used to learn. And sometimes I think with the, the older kids and the younger kids all in the same classroom and one teacher, that maybe the younger ones might have learned a little better from the ones that they looked up to. You know, the little grade school boys looked up to the high school boys because they were, they were nearly grown men. Yeah. But they could, they could teach them stuff, and they'd listen to them where they may not listen to the teacher. And if you know enough to teach a subject, you know that subject. And I think that's what a lot of the high school kids would figure out. If we know it well enough that we can teach it to the younger ones, we know it. And that's a big piece anymore that, that I think we, we miss out on, that we don't we don't let like our high school kids be those extra educators, I guess I'd call them, in a, in a one-room schoolhouse situation. You know, it wasn't all just the school marm teaching. There was a lot of other social interplay that went on in that building that kids learned and, and learned well. So listeners, if there's any contractors out there or painters or construction firms or trades of all types, we need to save that one-room schoolhouse. Absolutely. And speaking of school children, what are your thoughts about how best to keep history and community support flourishing for the current generation? Share with them what has been done, what we, we know 
is how we used to do it and contrast and compare that with what we have today. Because so many of the children today are pretty sure that food just shows up at the local grocery store in the back of a big 45-foot trailer. And that's all they know. They don't realize that that carrot or that ear of corn or that potato grew someplace and somebody actually had to grow that and harvest it and clean it and package it and ship it so it could show up at that grocery store. And I think the better job we can do of communicating the role of agriculture in people's lives, the better off we are. Somebody somewhere, I think on Facebook, posted something about without agriculture, you'd be hungry, naked, and sober. So <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> we've got a pretty good relationship with our, our local Piper uh, High School. We've got a group there that's called the, the Key Club, which is a uh, piece of the Kiwanis organization. Oh, nice. They volunteer real regular. They come out and assist with some of our special events. In fact, we had one of our uh, Key Club girls was Mrs. Santa Claus at our uh, our Santa Express <laughs> drive through here this year. Did a great job, dressed her up and made her up as rather much older than a high school girl. Yeah, yeah. And she did a great job of being <laughs> Mrs. Claus. They come out and they help with food and with directing traffic and they're a great group. Yeah. Fantastic. Why is the National Agricultural Center important to the community? And what makes your organization different or unique from other societies? Well, I think we've got so many that don't understand where their food comes from. And educating that local community is a big piece. One of the things that we're proposing to do for this, this coming spring and summer is to partner with a group called After the Harvest. What we're hoping to do is plant eight or 10 acres of sweet corn and uh, have some corporate partners and some of the After the Harvest people come in and uh, tend our sweet corn patch. And then when it's ready, we'll harvest that sweet corn and then donate it to some of the local food banks. And I think that's a big piece of community involvement and letting the community know that, hey, we're here and this is how you raise a crop of sweet corn. I think it's going to be a good fit for us to share with the community and not just our local community right here in Wyandotte County, but the whole three million people or so in our metro area. I'm hoping we can get some good media coverage over something like that, that some of the uh, the corporate people will, will participate with us and everybody get a little piece of that media pie and share what, what it really means to, to raise a crop and, and how it works and be able to donate that crop then to a local food bank. Now you have your whole metro area includes Wyandotte County and Kansas City. Is there any other big metro? Well, it would include Wyandotte, Johnson, Leavenworth counties on the Kansas side and Jackson, Clay, Platte on the Missouri side. So it's a, it's probably a 65, 70 mile circle or radius of, of a circle out from the, the downtown area. It's sizable. No, no other major metropolitan areas. You've got to go to Topeka, which is 60 miles away. St. Louis is probably 225 or 30. Wichita is 180. Uh, Omaha is probably almost 200. So we're we're centrally located. And I think that earlier figure of 50 or 60 percent of the population was was within a six-hour driving time. I think Cabela's 
when they first moved in, reinforced that fact that right here in the middle of the country in Kansas City, you are amazingly close within like an eight-hour driving time of the Chicago's and the Dallas and the Denver's and the St. Louis and the uh, the Nashville and the uh, Memphis and Indianapolis, Milwaukee, and some major metropolitan areas. I wanted people to hear that, that it's Wyandotte County and Johnson and Leavenworth County and then Jackson and Kay and Platt in Missouri, uh, as well as Kansas City, so that people's ears will perk up a little bit and say, oh, I live there. Yeah. Oh, they're close. So if I join the, the National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame, what benefits do I get as a member? If you join as a governor for your $200 a year, you get to come to our annual meeting. We're trying to make that into what it used to be. It was a big event. We would have guest speakers. I'm showing my age now when I tell you that one of our early guest speakers was Jack Benny. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, uh, yeah. So, you know who Jack Benny is. Oh, yeah. Some of of your listeners may not. No, that's right. But, uh, we, we try to make that annual meeting something of an event, put a meal with it, uh, put in a, a special guest speaker, like a, a, a personality. And then we also have our election of our, our uh, board officers at that same meeting. So you get to participate in the in the actual management of the facility by, by being a board of governor. Nice. And electing your, your board of directors and officers. Just a reminder for our listeners, the National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame contact information You can find their website at www.aghalloffame.com. They're also on Facebook at the National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame. Their address is 630 North 126th Street, Bonner Springs, Kansas, 66012. Their phone number is 913-721-1075. And you can email them anytime at info at aghalloffame.com. Is there any other information or any message you'd like the community or nationally or your members to know about? I think just the fact that we are so unique, that there really is no other place just like this in the whole country, maybe even the whole world. And that's what I've tried to emphasize to my board and to my board of governors and to my volunteers that, yeah, sometimes the task can seem overwhelming of maintaining 160 plus acres and 12 or 15 buildings. But remember, what we have is truly unique. It's special. It's something that nobody else in the whole country has. I hope that we can let more people know that this wonderful place exists, that they can come and support this and support the very place in our country where we can recognize agriculture for what it is. It's everything. In our lives, without so, agriculture, gosh, we we have nothing. Without agriculture, you're uh, you're hungry, naked, and sober. So, thank you, Dave, very much for spending time with us today. I learned a lot, and it's always eye-opening when I talk to an expert such as yourself. I'm hardly an expert, but I'm uh, I'm certainly a, a cheerleader. Let's put it that way. Thank you so much for your time. You're really a preservation oak, and you deserve to be supported as one. All right. Well, thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure. And with that, listeners, we'll end our time with our guest, Dave Hurlbrink of the National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame in Bonner Springs, Kansas. Listeners, please stay tuned for my comments and wrap-up, which is coming up next. Hey, everyone. We'll be right back to Preservation Oaks with Sean Thomas Radcliffe after these important messages. 
National Safety Council says, if you don't have seatbelts, get them. If you do have seatbelts, use them. This is Sandra Bankston, the president of the Fremont County Historical Society, and I love listening to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. Welcome back, listeners. What an honor it is to have the opportunity to have a conversation with Dave Hurlbrink, the president of the National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame in Bonner Springs, Kansas. This place is a totally unique organization with the U.S. Congressional Charter as the National Center for Agriculture in our nation. A few of the center's most pressing needs at this time. Dave mentioned that the center needs more volunteers since they have thousands of visitors each year. There's a wide variety of things that need to get done every day so volunteers are needed and can have a lot of fun. Please consider volunteering, especially if you live in Wyandotte County, Kansas City, Johnson County, or Leavenworth County, Kansas, or Jackson County, Clay County, or Platte County, Missouri. If you do, then it's just a short drive to the National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame for a visit or to volunteer. Dave said the old schoolhouse has been out in the weather for about 100 years and requires repairs. If you're a contractor, builder, handyman, or woman and would like to help, please contact the center at 913-721-1075 and talk with Judy. Based on my conversation with Dave and in my opinion, and I think Dave would agree, that the National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame seems to have a bit of an invisibility problem, just like agriculture itself does in our modern society. That needs to change. Until someone creates the replicator like they had on the television show Star Trek, all of us require agriculture and need to support and promote the National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame. It's the hub of all national agricultural information and preservation, whether it's the history of farming, what's going on today with farming, or the future of farming. A quote from Dave, without agriculture, we'd all be hungry, naked, and sober. In this episode, we learn about a world-famous celebrity camel named Lucy and how she made a two-day dash for the North Pole during the holiday season. We learn about the mission of the National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame, which is to honor, educate, and promote agriculture. The center conducts various programs with school children, high school students, and visitors to accomplish the mission. We learn about some of the past inductees into the Agricultural Hall of Fame, and each one of those inductees has their picture and a description of the date they were inducted and why they were inducted so that visitors can look at all of them. Dave discussed the National Farmers Memorial, its purpose and how it was created. He also reviewed a new exhibit regarding life in America in the 1930s during the Great Depression. Give yourself about three hours to tour the museum and grounds. It can take much longer because of the size of the collection. I know it would take me personally three hours just to get through the art gallery. Dave also reviewed the Smith Event Barn that visitors can rent for most any event. For the kids, there's a very cool small gauge railway that children of all ages can ride. You can also buy a brick for the Walk of Fame with your name or other information on it. If you'd like to have your family honored on the grounds for as long as the brick lasts, which is a long time, connect with the center to get yours today. 
We learned about how linemen are still a critical part of maintaining the rural power grid, and each year the center holds a large lineman's rodeo. A lot of people attend this event, so it's really fun and interesting. This year on April 23rd, at the first event of the season called Barnyard Babies, the center will host the people who maintain the large wind turbines across the country. And that should be really interesting. There were a thousand questions I could have asked Dave during our time together, but I didn't in the interest of time. If questions occur to you and you would like more information, please connect with the National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame via the contact information coming up. If you're a listener in the area the National Agricultural Center serves, or if you're a farmer, agricultural scientist, or ag-related business, and you're not already a sponsor, please consider supporting and visiting the National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame in Bonner Springs, Kansas. The contact information for the National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame, their website is www.aghalloffame.com. They're also on Facebook as the National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame. And Dave mentioned they post several times a week. Their address is 630 North 126th Street, Bonner Springs, Kansas 66012. The phone number is 913-721-1075. And their email address is info at aghalloffame.com. The center's closed between October and April. The 2022 season opens with the Barnyard Babies on April 23rd, and it's a family festival. So if you're traveling through Kansas City and would like to stop by or have a group of school children who would like an educational field trip, please call to make arrangements. They're always happy to show you the National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame. I hope this information helps the audience understand how valuable the National Agricultural Center and Hall of Fame is to the nation and what kinds of excellent services they have to offer to their members and the public. The National Agricultural Center is truly one of our preservation oaks. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. Music used today is from Scott Holmes, DJ Williams, Francesco Laterra, Cool Jazz, Track Tribe, Quinces Morera, and Cymbalbird. Microstream Radio is a registered trademark. This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by Microstream Radio. It cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere without the express written permission of Microstream Radio. Thanks to everyone for listening. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. See you all next time on Preservation Oaks. Preservation Oaks.